Let me take you to the Word of God, and let me read just the text that we'll look at in our time this morning. It's two verses, but they're packed full of truth. In fact, I'll, I'll just begin at one verse earlier. Let's read. You follow along, James 4, and I'll begin at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There is the text, and I've titled this message as it comes to us out of the Scripture, the sin of slander. The sin of slander. And I wanted to just take a moment, maybe before I uh, dove into the text, just to commend you, uh, not condemn you, but uh, commend you, because we've been here just a little short of two years, and as we've gotten here into this community in the last two years, I I don't come this morning as I think of the sin of slander, um, thinking that our church is battling this. Now, I certainly don't want to say this is not an issue that we need to deal with, but I really feel, for the most part, generally speaking, we don't have a gossiping church. We don't have a church that slanders people. In fact, I think my wife and I have been pleasantly surprised that there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, backbiting that takes place. And we notice that the people that we engage with at our church are very cautious of this very sin, uh, to not commit it. And we're not exactly sure why that is in the sense that we think that maybe some of our roots run deep and some of you are very careful and walk with the Lord. And so I really just want to commend you that as I preach this morning, I don't ever want it to seem as though I'm coming at you. I mean, I suppose if the shoe fits, wear it. But uh, uh, on the other hand, just to say, may this continue. May our speech, healthy speech, continue with one another that we might be salt and light. But when you think about it, and we're addressing this issue of slander, when it says, do not speak evil against one another, it is a very serious sin. In fact, it is the mark, actually, of a godly man in Psalm 15 that he does not slander with his tongue. And conversely, it is the mark of the wicked in Psalm 50 that they do slander others. I mean, when you look at the Scripture, you see the seriousness of slander that it caused David to vow. He said this in Psalm 101, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Frightening. Slander even caused David to pray in Psalm 140, May a slanderer not be established on the earth. In fact, as you continue to look in the Scripture, Solomon counseled against associating with a slanderer. He said this in Proverbs twenty nineteen that he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets 
And Solomon said there, do not associate with a gossip. Proverbs speaks of the devastating effects of slander. Proverbs 16.28 says that the slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 18.8 speaks of the deep wounds that would, inflict, uh, that would inflict the one who was slandered. Proverbs 11.9 warns that the slanderer can destroy people. It says in Proverbs 26.20 that a slanderer stirs up contention. It says in Proverbs 26.20 that they also spread strife. So you can see that this is a very serious sin in the Scripture. In fact, when you move over into the New Testament, Paul feared that he would find slander among the Corinthians when he visited them. He said that in 2 Corinthians 12.20. He said, I fear that when I come, I may find slander among you. In fact, in other New Testament epistles, Paul commanded the Ephesians in 431, he commanded the church at Colossae in Colossians 3.8 to avoid the sin of slander. When you look over at the Apostle Peter, Peter exhorted us not to slander in 1 Peter 2.1. And so slander is a very serious sin. In fact, I would be as bold to say that it is one of the greatest sins in all of the Scripture. And I'm just touching on a few passages. A poem speaks of the tongue's ability to build and destroy. It goes like this. I stood on the street of a busy town, watching men tearing a building down. With a ho, heave, ho, and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman of the crew, are those men as skilled as those you'd hire if you wanted to build? Ah, no, he said. No, indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can tear down as much in a day or two as it would take skilled men a year to do. And then I thought as I went my way, Just which of these two roles am I trying to play? Have I walked life's road with care, measuring each deed with rule and square? Or am I one of those who roam the town content with the labor of tearing down? And so I ask you this morning, are you into the building business? Or are you into demolition work with your tongue? That's the question. Now, as we come into the text this morning, we're on Roman numeral number eight in this wonderful book, that our faith is tested by our reaction to worldliness. And I believe we're still in that section. It's tested in the way that we react to worldliness. And one of the illustrations that he's going to give is this one on the tongue, And then if you come back, it could be super convicting next week on 4, 13 through 17 on come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town and build, engage in such and such a business and make a profit, but you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. We'll look at that on Memorial Weekend. But as as our focus is this morning is in 4, 11 and 12, and we ask the question, is there a connection with the previous passage? And my answer would be, yes, there's a, there's a connection. In fact, one 
uh, scholar, or at least commentator, said that this passage in James 4, 11, and 12, he called it a free-floating admonition. In other words, it's just kind of floating out there, and as James is writing, he just sticks it in right there after 4, 4 through 10. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. This is the Word of God. It's placed there super strategically. In fact, you remember if you go back to chapter 3 and you look at verse 13, he talks about the one who is wise and understanding. And he says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And so he addresses the issue there of a bitter spirit and jealousy. Remember, as you come into James 4.1, look there. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so these people to whom James was writing here, they were quarreling. They were fighting amongst themselves. And all of that bitter jealousy, that quarreling and fighting, was but an illustration of chapter 3, 1 through 12, on their lack of ability to tame the tongue. They could not tame the tongue. So you remember, look what he said in 3.10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be that way. They could not control their tongue. And a lack of self-control there led in 3.10 to the subject of cursing, And a lack of control, as he continued on, led to the sin of slander. Now, that's the background. The immediate context is this. Remember a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, when he talked in verse 10, and he said, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will, what? Exalt you. Follow the logic here. Slander, then, is what happens when... Humility is lacking in 4.10. When we lack humility in our own personal life, then slander is what happens. So watch this. What James is doing here is transitioning, if you will, from a general call to repentance in 4, 4 through 10, to a particular sin in 4.11 and 12, and that sin is slander. Listen. There is no greater evidence of pride, that's humility's opposite, than a slanderous tongue. Kent Hughes in his book said they were, speaking of those to whom he writes, puncturing one another with repeatedly fine gastric mixes of slander, gossip, and criticism. He called it a devil's feast. But then he went on to speak to us. He said, we're all skilled in rationalizing our corrosive speech. We've all done it and do it. We bite and are bitten. So God's word comes to us, he said, with equal force and application. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another. Listen, beloved, slander is scary. And, And I say scary because while other sins... Do they not sometimes require a unique set of circumstances before they could be acted upon? Slander needs only a malicious tongue that is fueled by hatred. It's scary. I mean, few sins 
in the Word of God are condemned so unmercifully as slander. Now what James does here in this text is he rebukes the slanderous tongue as sin, and then he provides the reason why it is so wicked, okay? He rebukes slander as a sin, and then he gives you, secondly, the reason why it is so wicked. Let's look to the text. First, the rebuke to stop slandering. It's there in 4.11. He says, and you can see it's a negative command, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There's the rebuke. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The key there, as you look at verse 11, if you want to underline it, is that phrase, to speak evil against. Now, you'll note that I'm using the word slander, but that's that phrase, do not speak against one another. I think it's interesting that if you're holding an NIV Bible this morning, the NIV just comes straight out and says, do not slander one another. ESV here in 4.11 says, do not speak evil against one another. It's the Greek word katalaleo, okay, to speak against. And what the word means is to talk against. That's what it means. It literally means to talk down on another. In fact, I think we use that phrase in our modern, modern vocabulary, do not run another down. We use that phrase. That's what the word means. But please understand that this word, to speak against, means a great deal more than just slander. Let me explain this for a moment. Slander, if I just looked at it in, in a straight biblical definition, slander is malicious speech that is untrue of another. I think we would understand that. It's talk against another that is untrue. That's what we would say. But this rebuke forbids, listen carefully, any speech, whether true or false, which runs another person down. There's a big difference there. In other words, you I can commit slander even if what you're saying about someone else is true. If your tone and your attitude is harsh and critical and judgmental, you could very well be speaking the truth of what happened, but you're doing it in such a way to run down another. That's slander. And the reason I say that is some think, not speaking of you directly, But some think that it's okay to convey negative information along to another as long as it's true. They've used this phrase, I've talked to so-and-so about this. And just because they've talked to so-and-so, maybe to the face, they now believe because they've been honest to someone, they can go share that uh, news and that negative information to someone else. That is biblically speaking, slander. Listen, it is slander. I mean, you would probably agree with me that lying, certainly, is sin. But listen, so is passing on damaging truth that runs another to the ground, okay? So let me just unpack this so you understand the rebuke to stop slandering. Barclay said, to speak against is the sin of those who meet in corners 
and gather in little groups and pass on confidential tidbits of information which destroy the good name of those who are not there to defend themselves. That's slander. Calvin put it this way on slander, John Calvin. He said, it is a sign of perverse and treacherous, uh, he said, disposition to wound the good name of another when he has no opportunity of defending himself, end of quote. That's slander. And James just says, listen, here's a rebuke. You've got to stop. See, what slander does, beloved, is it calls attention to the faults of others all the while minimizing their virtues. It is a speech, if you will, that erodes the position or character of the one spoken against. In fact, what it is, is it's a false tale or report that is, we could say, maliciously uttered, intending purposefully to injure the reputation of another by lessening him or her in the esteem or the eyes of other people. One writer said that slander strikes at people's dignity. It defames their character. It destroys their reputation, which is their most most, um, priceless worldly asset. In fact, do we not even have in our own society laws allowing those whose good name is slandered to sue for defamation of what? Character. One writer by the name of Derek Prime, I just thought this was true. He wrote this about the sin of slander. He said, when we hear something bad of another person, the instinctive reaction so often is to think there's no smoke without what? Fire. And almost without thinking about it, seeds of suspicion are accepted into our minds about the purpose, about the person who has been slandered. He says, I recall hearing someone drop in conversation a rather unpleasant remark and insinuation about another person. I immediately repudiated it and said I was sure that as I could be that the suggestion about this other person was incorrect. And yet the dreadful thing is that when that particular person comes to my mind now, I can still find my memory recalling the unpleasant thing that was said about him. And Prime said, once slander has been spoken, it is virtually impossible to do anything about it. Listen, beloved, be so careful of this. To ruin the name, to speak down on, to run down on, James just says, listen, this is an illustration of worldliness. If you've got that tongue under control, you're not going to slander and speak evil against one another. You remember in the Old Testament, Miriam and Aaron, and I think the words are interesting. Numbers 12, you can look at it on your own. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Now, the text is quite clear. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. They did not like who he married. And this is what they said to Moses. Has the Lord indeed only spoken to Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? 
and the Lord heard it. Then the Lord came down, imagine this, in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And he said this, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then, God says to Miriam and Aaron, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So it says there in Numbers 12 that the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. The Lord left. It says, and when the cloud, imagine this, was withdrawing from the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. Wow. I mean, what would happen if you were speaking about someone in our church and as you left the building and you got to the first step you became as leprous, white as snow. I mean, that'd probably take care of the sin all by itself, wouldn't it? But it's just, this is scary thoughts. They were speaking against, in this context, the Lord's servant. And the Lord was displeased with it, and she became leprous, as white as snow. You know, when you begin to unpack slander in the Word of God, it describes the actions that believers actually experience from one another. Excuse me, they experience from an unbelieving world, okay? I'm thinking of 1 Peter 2.12 when Peter would say this to us, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God. The unbeliever is going to slander you. In fact, he said in 1 Peter 3.16, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So I would just say that this can be expected, I suppose, from a non-believer. But beloved, not from us. In fact, look down in the Word of God. There's a threefold repetition of the word brother. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another brothers for the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and so here he's just affirming that we are God's family we cannot run one another down let's just make a pact that we won't do that and 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 I would say to you to commend you I don't hear that in conversations amongst you In fact, I would actually say the elders that I rub shoulders with are very careful to ever speak a derogatory word with anybody, about anybody. And I would pray that as I've seen that in them, that it would be witnessed and available in all of us. Why? Because we're brothers. We are in the same family. You know, we are blood brothers, if you will, according to Christ's blood. And we are to love each other. But listen, Paul said in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So, in, in fact, it's interesting. In Tyndale, in Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, which went way back, I I want to say into the 1500s early, he interpreted kataleleo in this fashion. He described it as backbiting. Do you ever use that word? They're just a backbiter. 
And I think it's interesting if that's part of the etymology of the, the word as it came to be. It's the idea of biting somebody in the back when they're not there. You're speaking against them and against their character and against their position and against their role when they can't be there to defend themselves. And so James just says, listen, here's a rebuke. And, and, and it's in the present tense as though they're, they're in motion of doing it. Now, I don't know if that's exactly true. And it's not as though I want to say you're doing it and I'm rebuking you to not do it. But here's just a rebuke and the word of God regarding the sin of slander that it must Stop. Now that rebuke, secondly, here, look in the text, is followed by the reason to stop slandering. The reason to stop slandering. Look at it in verse 11. It picks up there, kind of halfway in. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks, against, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Stop there just for a second. He's kind of continuing in this rebuke, but he's offering a reason. And he doesn't just talk about, you know, do not speak against. He adds to it just a little bit. Look at verse 11 again. He says, the one who speaks against a brother, that's just right there, but watch this, or judges his brother. Now, that's a different word. It's krino, okay? You got, you got somebody speaking against, kataleleo, but they're, they're not just speaking against and running somebody down. They are, in 4.11, they're judging his brother. And that word is krino, and it's, it just means this. It speaks of condemnation. In other words, they're not only running someone down, is the thought, but they are standing in judgment over another, is the thought. Okay? It, and what, you say, what are they actually saying? Look at verse 11 again. It says, if you do that, you speak evil, watch this, against the law, and you become judges of the law, okay? Now, you know, we're studying the Bible here. What do you mean, speaks evil against the law? What law? Verse 11, and judges the law. You, you might say, well, what law? Well, there's a number of ways we can take that, but we'll just interpret it right here in the book of James. We know exactly what law he's talking about. So what do you mean, what law? Well, you're speaking against the law. You're judging the law. What law? Look back just two chapters in chapter 2. Remember, there he spoke about the royal law. And here's the royal law in 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law, that's the law he's talking about, according to the Scriptures, he said, you shall, and here's the royal law, love your neighbor, what? As yourself. You know, you do, you're doing well. That's the royal law. The essence, listen, of God's law is to love God and to love your neighbor. And when you or I slander a brother or a sister, we are in violation of God's royal law of love. So he rebukes them for the slander. Then he gives them the reason for the rebuke is you're violating God's royal law. Now, if you look in 2.8 there, you can kind of tell it's, it's a little bit in that phrase, italicized. And we believe that royal law goes back to Leviticus. That's not new to James. Would you go back just for a moment to the book of Leviticus? 
Okay, I want to show you that royal law. He, he speaks of that law here. But look back in Leviticus chapter 19, and we touched on this in chapter 8. But in Leviticus ch- in, in chapter 19, Leviticus 19, it's, it's amazing what it says here. When, it, when it's telling us this, and it's speaking in the paragraph there of Leviticus 19 on the Lord is holy, but it says this in 1918, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Why not? But you shall love your neighbor, what? As yourself. I am the Lord. That's the royal law. Quoted in Romans, excuse me, James 2.8. Quoted here in Leviticus 19.18. But as your mind and heart and eyes are there, look back just a couple of previous verses in Leviticus 19.16. Fascinating. You shall not go around as a, what? Slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. He says, listen to the nation of Israel. You can't go around as a slanderer. And either can we as a church in the New Testament. He says, you can't do that. Why? Because this is the royal law. What's the royal law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. Look over at Matthew 22. Go back to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 22, this royal law is communicated there, and you've seen the royal law before. Remember the Sadducees, or when the Pharisees has heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together in Matthew 22. And in verse 35 of Matthew 22, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second, verse 39, is like it. You shall love your, what? Neighbor as yourself. And then, incredibly, verse 40, Jesus said, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, you can take all the Old Testament, take all the law, take all the the commandments, and you can put them up and boil them down together and put them right here, that if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, on those two commandments depend everything. That's the royal law. The royal law says this, Grace Church of the Valley, love God and love your neighbor. And if you truly love your neighbor, you are not going to speak down, to speak against, to run down another person. This is the flat-out teaching of the Scripture. Look over in your Bible in Romans chapter 13. It's so precisely stated there. Look at Romans chapter 13. Turn over there. Paul continuing this theme of the royal law. In Romans chapter 13, as he gets to the exhortation after chapters 1 through 11 on doctrine... But he says this in 13.8, Oh, nothing or no one, anything except this, to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled what? The law. 
If you love one another, you fulfill the law. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Listen, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, verse 13, you don't need a command to not murder. Because when you really love your neighbor, you'd never murder. If you really love your neighbor, you would never steal. If you really loved your neighbor, you would never commit adultery. Because in your mind, in your heart, you want to fulfill the royal law to love him and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you can write this one down. Paul said this to the church at Galatia in 5.14, to put it this succinctly, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So listen, Grace Church of the Valley, I commend you. Keep going with this. I mean, even I, I was away a couple weeks ago and we were talking about youth groups and gossip. I just kind of thought to myself, I don't see that amongst our young people. Now, I'm not saying it's not there, but, but I don't really, we don't have a student ministry, whether it's reality or resolve, where people are talking about each other and backbiting against each other. And I just say to our students, I commend you on that. May God just continue to do that. Because I've been around some groups that just bite and devour one another and gossip about one another and talk about who each other is dating and what is said. And uh, Listen, listen, if we really love the royal law, whether we're a student or an adult, then we'll not want to speak against a neighbor. It's such a sin against God's royal law. I have read of the horrendous effects of slander in the life of David Livingstone, Livingston, who was a famous missionary in Africa. And when he first went to Africa to safeguard his wife from the hardships that were inevitable in the initial stages of establishing a home for her with him, he left her in a secure place back in England until he had prepared a home for her. But the people began to talk unkindly, suggesting that they were not getting along and that Mrs. Livingstone was not to help a help to her husband. And so Livingstone David was so troubled by these insinuations that he sent for his wife and she came only to become ill and die. I mean, what a dreadful responsibility rests upon those who release poison with their tongues. Now, let me just clarify something for you, okay? Real clear. I don't think I need to say this to you, but I will, okay? James is not forbidding confronting another believer in sin, right? If somebody is in sin, according to Matthew 18, you go to your brother in private to the one sinning. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking about exposing a false teacher. We're going to do that. And we ought to have such relationship with each other in a spirit of gentleness that if someone is in sin, we go to them in a spirit of humility. And if they won't hear us, then we take two and so forth. But that's not what James is talking about. James is confronting a harsh spirit 
that defames another's character. And there is a huge difference with that. See, Scripture forbids a critical spirit that judges everyone and everything seeking to run others down. Okay? In fact, look at the text. Go back to the text in, in James now. Look, look as he clarifies this. He says, you're gonna, you're, the reason is you're going to violate the royal law. But look what he says. He says there, but if you judge the law, verse 11 at the end, you are not a doer of the law, but a what? But a judge of it. See, a, a judgmental spirit against another implies, verse 11, that you are exempt from obeying the law. And if that's true, then you become the judge of the law. And in reality, at least according to James chapter 1 and 2, your responsibility is to obey the law, not sit in judgment of others. So if you disregard, here's the point, God's royal law of love, you become a judge of it, claiming to be above the law in complete disobedience to the law of God. And besides, look at verse 12, he's so clear, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Stop there, okay? There is only one lawgiver, not two, okay? Stop acting as if you're God. God alone is the judge, the ultimate source of all law and authority. And so do not, James is saying here, usurp the prerogative that is God's alone. The very one who gives the law, the very one who is the judge of the law, is the only one qualified. Look again at verse 12. He is the one who is able to save and destroy. In other words, God alone has the ability to determine the eternal destiny of souls. And the point being is that because God is the only one who can save and destroy, only God has the right to judge. I think it said this in Deuteronomy 32, 39. God said, see now that I am he and there is no gods beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. He's the one who can save and destroy. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's the one who has the ability to save and destroy. So James is saying to us, how utterly presumptuous to judge his creatures and usurp the right that is only God's. How arrogant. I mean, I'm just thinking of this verse when Paul profoundly said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He said, do not go on passing judgment before the time. He said, wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. But he said real, real clearly there in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time. In fact, look down at the text in verse 12. After he says there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, he clarifies, he says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
I mean, I feel like in the modern vernacular, he would say, are you kidding me? Come on. Who are you? You got to be kidding me. There's only one lawgiver and it's not you. So who are you or who am I to judge our neighbor? And by the way, you don't think I'm exempt from this. You know that I'm not. In fact, I would say much of the direction of our church will be set from top down in our leadership with a spirit of humility. And I have seen pastors chew people up and spit them out and judge them and judge their motive. And I kind of feel like James would say to those in ministry and those in leadership and to myself, who are you to judge your neighbor? In fact, you know the teaching in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And the way you judge, Jesus said, you will be judged. Jesus said, he said, you hypocrite, first take the log out of what? Your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I mean, Paul put it this way. Who are you, Romans 14, 4, to judge the servant of another? And he's talking about gray areas there, right? He's not talking about what's right and wrong, what's pure and holy and what's sinful. But he just says in gray matter areas, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? He said, for we're all going to stand before God. I mean, you're going to stand before God and I will stand before God. He says, as the Lord lives, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Wow. Think about that when we're running someone down. He says, therefore, do not let us pass judgment on another any longer, but rather, he said, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Wow, that's Romans 14. He says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We're uh, blood brothers. Somebody has told me, I've not seen him. They say, hey, Scott, this is a great movie, military movie on leadership. It's inspiring. It's called the Band of Brothers. I've not seen the, bl- the Band of Brothers. They said it's really good. But listen, I'm thinking, hey, more than the Band of Brothers in a war, we're blood brothers and sisters with each other, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And for that, we need to be so very careful. Now, listen, this does not rule out, let me just say this, civil courts. It does not rule out earthly judges. It rules out in the text here a critical spirit that finds fault with another. When we judge and speak against others, we are trying to push God off his judgment seat and we are placing ourselves on it. So we are rebuked to stop speaking evil against one another. And the reason provided is that when it's, he says, when we become a judge of the law, that usurps the prerogative that belongs only to God. Back in 1872, John Wesley and a group of men signed a covenant and it hung on each of their walls in their respective rooms. And the covenant went as follows. And I thought maybe we should put this in our new building. Number one, listen, this was the covenant. It was a covenant of a, of a group of men. Number one, that we will not listen or willingly inquire of gossip concerning another. 
Number two, that if we do hear any gossip of each other, we will not be forward to believe it. Three, that as soon as possible, we will communicate what we hear by speaking and writing to the person concerned. Number four, that until we have done this, we will not write or speak a syllable of it to any other person. Number five, that neither will we mention it afterward that we have done this to any other person. And he said, number six, we will not make any exception to these rules unless we think ourselves absolutely obliged in conference to meet on that. I think John Wesley and his friends determined to live out the truth of James 4.11. Do not speak against one another. Listen, you say, where, Scott, where does the gospel fit in this? That's kind of a hard-hitting word, is it not? I, mean, I just convicted in my own heart, Lord, I'm going to have to stand before you. Help me, help me. Where does the, the cross, where does the gospel fit into this as we go to communion? In this, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. And then Paul says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. He said along with all malice. And then he would say to us, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other. You remember the statement? Just as God in Christ has, what? Forgiven you. Listen, as Almighty God and the work of His only begotten Son on his, in His death on the cross has forgiven you of your sins, you are called in like manner to forgive others who sin against you, to not you know, foam up their sin. And again, he's not telling us not to confront one another in sin, but he's talking about a malicious heart attitude that runs someone else down while they're not there in your presence in that discussion. So I would pray that as we come to the Lord's table that we would remember these things.